Chapter Thirteen of In Kent with Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. In Kent with Charles Dickens by Thomas Frost. Chapter Thirteen. Margate Jetty was dull and deserted that night. I went there when darkness precluded farther strolling, but with the rest of the loungers was driven off by a steady fall of rain. The sky was overcast with dark clouds, and the pattering rain formed a dismal accompaniment to the melancholy surging of the sea among the iron columns below. I sought my lodging, therefore, and strove to while away an hour in conversation with the old son of Crispin, at whose domicile I had quartered myself. "'This must be a very dull place in the winter,' I remarked. "'Oh, no,' he rejoined. "'You don't see so many people, of course, and it is quieter always. No band, no niggers, and such like about. But, bless you, there is always something exciting going on. A ship coming ashore, or the lifeboat going off, or a disabled vessel being towed into the harbour. "'Any smuggling done now?' I asked. "'Nothing, or next to nothing,' the old man replied. "'It don't pay now like it did in the old times.' when there was heavy duties on foreign wines and spirits and silks and lace. Fortunes used to be made in them days in what they called the free trade. Without recalling the story of Will Watch, embodied in more than one old ballad and modern romance with which I was acquainted in my boyhood, I could remember hearing much about smugglers and smuggling, which disposed me to be a willing listener to anything the old man might say upon that subject. I had heard my father speak of the smuggled merchandise brought into London in those days by strings of pack-horses through byways and green lanes, and I knew a mansion in Surrey, within six miles of the Metropolitan Bridges, which was the suburban residence of a wealthy wholesale mercer, whose father was said to have made a fortune by speculations in smuggled French silks, the said mansion being, when I was a boy, familiarly spoken of in the village as Smuggler's Hall. I remembered, too, that being one day, many years ago, at one of the oldest houses in Norwood, then the property of one of my maternal aunts, the old lady who saw the ghost, my relative produced a bottle of Hollands, with the remark, "'This was smuggled by old Will Fox. It is the last bottle.' "'There must have been some money flying,' when the famous Bill Johnson escaped from Horsemonger Lane Jail, I observed, in response to the old man's last remark. "'Aye,' he returned, "'it was a golden key that opened the prison doors for him, you may depend upon it. And a sight of money must have been spent to open the way to Boulogne for him. I have heard my father say that relays of post-horses were ready every ten miles of the road to Dover and that all the turnpike gates were thrown open for him to dash through without a moment's hindrance. The smugglers on this part of the coast used to run their cargoes ashore at the gaps, didn't they? said I. Aye, many's the cask and bale that's come up the gaps between here and the foreland, he replied. There was always men on the lookout when one of the luggers was expected, and then she dodged off and on until a favourable opportunity offered such as a dark night, or the preventive men being led away on a false scent. 
and then a signal was given, such as a flare or a blue light, and the cargo was run, and before daylight was carted away inland. Sometimes there was a fight, I suppose. Not so often as might be supposed, or the trade couldn't have been carried on. Still, the preventive men used to come down upon them sometimes, and then shots would be fired, and perhaps there would be some cutlass work. I remember hearing a story when I was a boy of a fray like that, in which a preventive officer was shot dead, and a young man who was said to have been helping to run the cargo disappeared. But whether he had been killed in the fray and secretly buried, or whether he had run away on account of being concerned in it, nobody could say. When several years had passed without anything being heard of him, his father, who was a farmer, and had accumulated some property, as farmers could in them days, died, and the second son stepped into everything, telling everybody that his brother had died in France. In less than a year, however, the elder brother came back, and claimed the property. The other one tried at first to make out that he was an impostor, but finding that wouldn't do, he gave information to the justices, and the young man was taken upon a warrant, and tried at Maidstone for the murder of the officer. "'Was he convicted?' I asked. "'No, there was not sufficient evidence found when it come to be tried, and so he was acquitted.' The rain had by this time ceased, and I went out to look at the sea again, and to ponder the old man's story, the chief incidents of which I recast into the following form— as I leaned over the railing at the back of the houses on the north side of the high street, looking at the sombre sea, and listening to the mournful sound made by the tide as it alternately rolled up the shingle below and then swept it back again. THE KING'S PRESS Two hundred years ago no one would have predicted that Margate, or as it was then called, Mergate, would ever attain its present proportions. It was a village only, consisting of a straggling street of wooden houses, occupied chiefly by fishermen, with a sprinkling of necessary shops, and the old flint-built church, dedicated to St. John the Baptist, which had been erected in the eleventh century, sixteen years before William the Norman marched through Kent with his victorious army. Such it had been for centuries, and such it seemed likely to remain, and probably would have remained but for the inventions of Watt and Stevenson. One night, at no later hour than the band now plays on the jetty, but at which few lights twinkled in cottage windows and shops were all closed, in the days when economy in candle-ends prompted early hours, a band of seamen, armed with cutlasses and pistols, and whose leader's uniform showed that he was an officer of a king's ship, came from the little harbour in which the fishermen moored their boats, and tramped along the street in the direction of the village alehouse, before which swung the sign of the six bells. There they paused and listened. Light shone through the faded red curtain at the window, and from within came the sound of merry voices, bursts of laughter, and snatches of song mingled with the chinking of ale-mugs. "'There must be a dozen stout fellows in there,' whispered the officer to a boatswain. "'We shall have a rare haul.' 
Entering the house alone, he looked into the room in which the topers were assembled, and saw that most of them were fishermen, with here and there a yeoman or farmer of the neighbourhood. "'What cheer, lads!' he exclaimed, assuming a jovial tone. "'How many of you will volunteer to serve the king?' The voices ceased, the merriment died away instantly, and mugs on their way to mouths were set down again. "'The press!' cried one, as the figures of the seamen were seen beyond the officer, and then they all sprang to their feet, some rushing to the window, others snatching up ash sticks and fire-irons to defend themselves. The officer and his men rushed into the room, and the former, seeing an athletic young fellow endeavouring to escape by the window, caught him by the arm and tried to pull him back. A struggle ensued. A knife was snatched from a seaman's belt and plunged into the officer's breast. He staggered back with a gurgling cry, which subsided into a groan as he fell upon the floor, and the homicide made his escape by the window. Similar struggles were going on at the same time between the latter's companions and the seamen, both sides using their weapons freely, but without any more serious results than cuts and contusions on heads and arms. In the end, half a dozen of the villagers were dragged away to serve the king, their companions having escaped by the window, and the corpse of the officer was left to await the coroner's inquest. The affray, resulting as it did in the slaying of a king's officer and the impressment of six fishermen, produced an unwonted excitement in the quiet little village. There was another man missing the eldest son of a substantial yeoman of the neighbourhood, but as his description corresponded with that given by more than one of the seamen of the young man whom they had seen struggling with the officer, and the boatswain swore that he was not among the impressed men, it was supposed that he had fled to avoid the consequences of the fatal blow, and a warrant was issued for his apprehension. Ten years passed, and Paul Maxted did not return. If his relatives received any communication from him, they did not make it public, but professed to know no more than their neighbours. His father died a few years after his disappearance, and his younger brother, Stephen Maxted, took possession of the patrimonial estate. One day, as the young yeoman was calculating the probable value of his ungarnered corn crop, for he was a man overmuch concerned with the care of adding guinea to guinea. A footstep on the garden path and a shadow on the porch drew his attention to a stalwart figure in the garb of a mariner, who, as he looked up, stepped forward and extended a large brown hand. "'What cheer, Stephen!' said the mariner, with hearty joviality. Stephen Maxted stared, changed colour, and neither moved nor spoke. His wife, who was rocking the cradle on the other side of the table at which he was sitting, looked up on hearing the stranger's voice, and wondered who he was. "'Don't you know me?' said the mariner. "'Has ten years' wanderings so changed him that you don't know your own and only brother?' "'My brother!' exclaimed the yeoman, with an air of surprise and incredulity. "'My brother went away ten years ago, and has never been heard of since. "'Who you are, I don't know.' 
"'Then I must be more changed than I thought I was,' said the mariner, with an expression of disappointment on his sun-browned but not unhandsome countenance. He doffed his cap on perceiving Stephen's wife, and, without waiting to be invited, seated himself near the table, and looked around the room. "'The old place is little changed,' he observed, "'and I should have known you, Stephen, if I had met you on the custom-house quay at Rotterdam. That lady, Mrs. Stephen Maxted, I reckon, has changed more than you have, but I think I remember her when she was called Jenny Harnett.' "'I don't remember you,' said the young woman, averting her eyes from the mariner, and occupying herself with her baby. "'And I don't believe you are Paul Maxted any more than I am the Duke of York,' said her husband. "'You don't?' exclaimed the mariner, with even more surprise and incredulity in his tone and look than had been manifested by the yeoman. There was a strong resemblance between the two men— not only in the colour of the hair and the eyes and the general cast of countenance, but even in every feature, their dissimilarity being confined to the expression of character and temperament, in respect of which the balance was in favour of the mariner. "'What will convince you?' the latter asked, after a pause. "'It will take a good deal to convince me that you are Paul Maxted,' Stephen replied coldly. "'It would be uphill work to convince you against your will, Stephen,' said the mariner, with a thoughtful air. "'Have you got a bit of my writing anywhere?' "'Not a scrap,' replied Stephen, with a shrug. "'Not the letters I wrote from Rotterdam?' said the mariner. "'My brother never wrote,' rejoined the yeoman. "'We have for years believed him dead.' "'Try me with questions about the family and about the place.' said the other. "'Not I,' returned Stephen. "'You have got your story up well, I dare say.' "'This is not the sort of welcome I expected,' the mariner observed, as he rose and turned towards the door. "'But I dare say I shall find old mates in the village that will know me, and be glad to see me.' Stephen Maxted changed colour again on hearing this remark, but he said not a word— and the unwelcome visitor departed. "'He has gone towards Margate,' said the yeoman, gazing after him with an air of anxious thought. "'Is he Paul, think you?' inquired his wife. "'He can't be,' he replied. "'He is not a bit like Paul.' "'But what made you say Paul never wrote?' Jenny asked. "'What made me say that?' returned Stephen, with a slight degree of confusion. "'Why, I wasn't going to give him a chance of producing a tolerable imitation of Paul's handwriting. Let him make out his claim the best way he can.' He made two or three turns across the room, corrugating his brows, and looking anxious and perplexed, in spite of his strong expressions of disbelief of the mariner's claim. In truth, there was in his mind no doubt whatever that it was his brother from whom he had just parted so coldly, after a separation of ten years, but he was unwilling to acknowledge the conviction to his wife, having long before determined that he would never willingly surrender to Paul the patrimony which circumstances had placed in his possession. "'This fellow must be looked after,' he observed, 
or he will make mischief. There is nothing very particular to be done today, so I think I'll ride over to Canterbury and see a lawyer about it. So while the mariner walked towards Margate, gradually forgetting his disappointment under the influence of sunshine and his natural lightness of heart, Stephen Maxted was riding towards the ancient city of Canterbury, pondering the possible means of ridding himself of this awkward claimant. "'Nothing easier, my good sir,' said the lawyer to whom he stated the case, rubbing his hands as he spoke, as if he thought the suggestion a good joke. "'If he is, Paul Maxted, there is a warrant out for him, and I would go bail he would be glad, if he saw it, in company with a constable's staff, to prove that he is not Paul Maxted, though after claiming to be your brother he might find that as difficult as proving that he is Paul Maxted. Stephen Maxted had thought of this while riding, and he was not sorry to have it suggested to him by a lawyer. It made it so much easier for him to satisfy his conscience as to the shortest way of dealing with the claimant. So he rode to the residence of the magistrate who, ten years before, had issued the warrant for his brother's apprehension, and gave information that a man claiming to be Paul Maxted was in Margate. Mind, he was careful to say, I don't say that he is Paul Maxted, I don't believe that he is, but he says he is, and if he isn't... Why, then your information is worth nothing, and if he is Paul Maxted you will have hanged your brother, rejoined the magistrate with a look of emphatic condemnation of the informer. "'But I don't believe he is, Paul,' said Stephen, colouring to the roots of his hair, and casting down his eyes. "'Then what have you come here for?' the magistrate asked. "'I must do my duty, Master Stephen Maxted, and that is to put a constable on the track of this man. But mark me, whether he is your brother or not,' "'Your name will stink in the nostrils of Kentish men as long as you live.' Stephen Maxted left the magistrate's presence, looking very red and very glum, and, remounting his horse, rode slowly home. He said nothing to his wife about his visit to the magistrate, limiting his communication of the result of his journey to Canterbury to a statement that the lawyer's advice was that the mariner should be left to his own devices, as, if he was not Paul Maxted, he was not likely to risk a halter for Paul Maxted's crime. The mariner was, in the meantime, consoling himself for his reception by Stephen Maxted, with a carouse at the Six Bells, with various old acquaintances of Paul Maxted, who had flocked to the house on the rumour spreading through the village that the missing man had returned. Some had recognised him at sight. Others, without doing so, shook his proffered hand heartily, and asked for no proof of his identity when assured by him that he was Paul Maxted. "'But aren't it a bit risky, Paul?' whispered Will Hogbin, the wheelwright. "'What, after ten years?' returned the mariner. "'I reckon that has pretty well blown over by this time, Will.' and who is there that would inform against a neighbour for what he did in defence of his liberty? If there is one that would, Margate manners must have changed while I have been across the herring-pond. "'And so you have been sailing to the Indies with the Dutchman,' said Sam Mockett, 
who kept a general store in the village, and had just run in to see whether it was really true that Paul Maxted was at the Six Bells. "'I warrant you saw many things to be talked about in them outlandish parts. Is it true that the Emperor of Java has a palace covered with plates of gold?' Before the mariner could answer the question, the village constable stepped into the room, staff in hand, and approached the table at which he was sitting. "'I arrest you, Paul Maxted, for the murder of Hugh Clavering,' said he. "'Here is the warrant, and I call upon all to aid and assist in the King's name.' No one moved except the mariner, who cleared the table at a bound, overthrew the constable, and rushed for the door. There, stumbling at the threshold over a dog, he was detained by a wagoner, who did not know him, and who, thinking he looked like a foreigner, deemed that circumstance and his flight sufficient to warrant his detention. His endeavours to extricate himself caused the wagoner to hold him with a more determined grip, and the constable, having picked himself up, closed the handcuffs upon his wrists with a savage click. An hour afterwards, one of the fishermen of the village boarded a small Dutch vessel, which had come into harbour that morning, and asked to see the skipper's wife. A fair young woman, with a glory of golden hair waving about one of the loveliest faces the fisherman had ever seen, came from the cabin, and looked inquiringly upon his weather-beaten countenance. "'I wishes somebody else had to tell it you,' said he, regarding her with an expression of compassion as he doffed his cap. "'But it had better be told you at once, and—' "'What is it? Has anything happened to my husband?' she asked, turning pale at the thought. "'He is well, my good lady,' returned the fisherman. "'But he has got into a bit of trouble along of a fray there was in the village ten year ago.' when a king's officer was killed while pressing men for the navy, and it was sworn as to as Master Paul Maxted's hand as struck the blow that killed him. "'Is he in prison?' the poor wife asked, pressing her hand upon her heart. "'Oh, take me to him!' "'Don't get sterricky, there's a good lady,' said the fisherman. "'He has gone up to the justice's house to hear the charge, and it may be that they'll be able to make out nothing against him.' "'But while we hope for the best, we must be prepared for the worst.' "'Where is he?' she asked, all the anguish of her mind finding expression in her lovely countenance. "'Take me to him. I must see him.' "'Poor lass,' murmured the fisherman, as she hurriedly attired herself for the shore, and came forth from the cabin, leading by the hand a beautiful girl of three or four years old. They had not advanced far along the village street when they were met by a brown-faced fisher-lad, who was hurrying towards the harbour with an expression upon his countenance that indicated the possession of news and a burning desire to impart it. "'What cheer, Master Kebble?' he cried, scarcely pausing, but turning round and walking backward, speaking as he went. "'Heard the news? Paul Maxted is committed, and they say he'll be hung.' "'Never, sure!' exclaimed Kibble, dilating his eyes widely. "'Heart alive! But there, don't be cast down, my good lady. It mayn't be true, after all.' For a moment the mariner's lovely wife looked as if she would faint. But she leaned against a wall, and a mug of water brought by a fisherman's wife arrested the receding life. 
As she put back the golden tresses from her forehead, her blue eyes discerned a well-known figure on the opposite side of the street. It was her husband, handcuffed and in the custody of the constable. In a moment she had bounded to his side and clasped him in her arms, while the little girl clung weeping to her father's coat. At that moment the joyous clang of bells rang out from the old church tower, and the clatter of horses' feet upon the hard road, causing the fisher-children who had gathered about the prisoner and his grief-stricken wife and child to turn their gaze eastward, a cry was raised of, "'Here they come!' and the sorrowing group was immediately deserted for the new attraction. "'Huzzah!' shouted the villagers, running from their shops and their cottages and from the six bells, as a troop of velvet-coated and sordid cavaliers trotted into the village. "'Huzzah for the king and the noble duke!' "'The king!' exclaimed the prisoner's wife, catching at the word as if it had been a reprieve from the scaffold. And then she rushed into the road, and throwing herself upon her knees in the dust, raised her clasped hands and tearful countenance, lovely even in grief, crying, "'Pardon, most gracious king, pardon!' "'For whom do you implore pardon, my good woman?' asked the king, who, with his royal brother, had just before landed at Bartholomew's Gate, thenceforward to be known as the King's Gate. "'For yonder good-looking rascal with the bracelets on his wrists? Come hither, fellow!' "'Surely I have seen him before,' he added, as if speaking to himself, as the prisoner and the constable stepped into the road, the latter taking off both his own hat and the prisoner's. "'Of what is he accused?' "'He has just been committed, may it please your Majesty, on the charge of murdering Hugh Clavering, an officer of the fleet, ten years ago,' replied the constable. Ten years ago?' repeated the King, stroking his moustache with an air of thought, as he contemplated the sad yet bold face of the prisoner. "'What do you say to the charge, fellow?' "'It was a hasty blow, your Majesty.' "'struck by a desperate man in defence of his liberty,' replied Paul Maxted. "'Resisting the press, may it please your Majesty,' said the constable. "'Ought to be hanged,' observed the Duke of York, with a frown. "'How is the fleet to be manned?' "'The certificate, Paul,' cried the kneeling beauty, raising her blue eyes anxiously to her husband's countenance. "'Where is it?' "'In my breast-pocket,' replied the prisoner, a ray of hope shining into his heart as he remembered it. In an instant she had sprung to his side, and took from his pocket a little leather case, from which she drew a folded paper. "'Ah!' ejaculated the king, as he extended his hand for it. "'I thought I had seen him before.' The paper was in his own handwriting— and set forth that Paul Maxted had on a certain day saved the life of Charles Stuart. "'The boon you crave is granted, good woman,' said the king, returning the paper. "'By my faith, a sweet face, James. The pardon shall be sent down as soon as I reach Whitehall. "'A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, your majesty,' said Paul Maxted. "'A bold fellow?' murmured Charles, glancing at him under his bushy brows. 
as ready with his tongue as with his cudgel. But I have a sad habit of forgetting things that I ought to remember, I must confess. Draw me up a pardon in as clerkly a form as you can, he added, addressing one of his attendants, who instantly dismounted and disappeared within the doors of the six bells. "'Heaven bless your majesty!' cried the prisoner's wife, as with tearful eyes she leaned upon her husband's shoulder. "'You should have seen how the fellow laid about him,' said the king, turning to his royal brother. "'He saved my life, I verily believe, when I was sorely beset by the rufflers of Alsatia during a night frolic with Rochester and Sedley.' The pardon being brought him for signature, he scrawled Carolus Rex at the foot without leaving the saddle, gave it to Maxted's wife, who availed herself of the opportunity to kiss his hand, and rode on amidst cries of, "'God bless your majesty! Huzzah for the king and the noble duke!' The constable, being unable to read, would fain have taken his prisoner back to the residence of the magistrate by whom he had been committed but the villagers insisted upon Maxted's instant liberation, and he was awed by their vociferations and threats into unlocking the handcuffs and setting him free. They would then have carried him off to the six bells, but Paul, shaking hands with the nearest, hurried towards the harbour with his wife and child. Stephen Maxted left the neighbourhood a few days afterwards, and took up his abode in an adjoining county, under a change of name. Paul Maxted abandoned his roving life on the ocean, renounced taverns and roistering companions, and lived quietly and happily during the remainder of his life on his patrimony, remitting to his brother on every quarter-day a sum of money sufficient for his support for the next three months, thus returning good for evil though Stephen could never be brought to see the matter in that light. End of chapter 13